This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Appreciate you tuning in today. We're picking up with part five of our People of God series, and we're thinking about the question, what was established on Pentecost? What was established on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? So to answer that question, uh, I want to start in Matthew chapter 16 in verses 18 and 19, where on the heels of Peter's good confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and his belief in that, Jesus says, you are Simon Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And I know there's a great deal of teaching in the religious world that teaches the rock in that passage is is Peter, uh, but I don't believe that's that's what Jesus is saying. I believe the context and we're not going to go into detail this today about that, but the context, I believe, is pointing to what Peter said. His confession would be the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And as we know, the apostles later had authority uh, not to legislate, but to reveal what God uh, was inspiring them to reveal. And how God wanted him to wanted them to teach his people and how his people were to conduct themselves. But none of those are the point that I want to make from the passage. The, the point that I want to seize upon is that in the text, when Jesus says, I will build my church, and he speaks of the keys of the kingdom, that that shows the church and kingdom have some things in common, that they are related. And if we look in Mark chapter 9, we find Jesus speaking of the kingdom again, and he says, there are people standing here. Uh, who will see the kingdom come with power. He says the kingdom will come with power within this generation. And then he says there are folks standing here who will not see death until they see that. And so that shows us that as Jesus is speaking in the future tense about his, his church and his kingdom, other parts of the gospel tell us that it was imminent, as in being very close and what happened within those individuals' lifetimes that knew and were around Jesus, that they would see it come with with power. And the power that Jesus speaks of, I believe, is that which would be bestowed upon his apostles by the Holy Spirit. When he tells them in Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And we read and we continue reading in Acts chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4, and we see that the Holy Spirit came on the first Pentecost following the resurrection recorded there in Acts 2. And that chapter also records at the very end in verse 47 that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So we put all that together. We have church and kingdom being related. Then the kingdom would come meaning the church would come and be established on uh, within that generation and that it would come with power. And then we see that power manifesting itself, or the Holy Spirit rather, coming with power and endowing the apostles to speak in different languages that they never learned and to perform all these different kinds of, of miracles. And then in that very same chapter, we see the church is the body of people being described there, that God is adding to that church, to his church, those who are being saved. That is those who were submitting to the conditions that Peter lays down earlier in the chapter in verses 37 and 38. So church and kingdom, the point is church and kingdom existed then in Acts chapter 2. 
when Jesus said in Luke 24 that beginning at Jerusalem you would preach that the apostles would preach repentance and forgiveness of sins that that's that is a very narrow time frame that we can single out and see in scripture from Jesus himself that when as to when the beginning would come right when the beginning of his rule would uh would start and that's in Acts chapter 2 within that generation uh, and the Holy Spirit coming with power. And so it, it existed then and it and existed now. And I know that even within Scripture, the use of church and the use of kingdom, it varies widely. And kingdom does not exclusively refer to church or only to church. Even in the New Testament, it's used sometimes just to describe uh, the world itself. And uh, God's rule over the world is called kingdom in Matthew 13 verses 38 and 41. So the the term is applied also to the internal inheritance of the saints in 2 Timothy 4.18. And also in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead, he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so in, in there he's talking about uh, the future eternal inheritance and the full realization of uh, God's kingdom and being with him and our physical bodies have to go away. Um, for us to uh, be part of that. And, and of course, Paul is talking about the resurrection and being changed and, and the transformation. So all of that to say, you know, kingdom is not used exclusively of the, the church or God's rule of the church. And even church itself is a word that just simply means called out. And it's also not used exclusively of God's people in, in the New Testament. The vast majority of usages it is, but it simply just means a called out assembly. And so, uh, you know, all of that to say, I acknowledge, yes, there's there's different uses of kingdom and church in the New Testament, but we're focused on how it's used um, in Acts chapter 2. And uh, that helps us answer the question, what was established on Pentecost? Even though that word is not found in Acts chapter 2 uh, of something being established we see it freely used in prophecy, and we see in those passages that we noted at the beginning of our study that Jesus had in mind a, a beginning of something there at Jerusalem that would be spearheaded by his chosen apostles when they began their teaching. And the Holy Spirit inspired them to do that on the day of Pentecost, so we know that was the beginning that Jesus had in mind. And when we look in prophecies, as I mentioned, we do find that idea of something being established um, like in second Samuel seven, when God through the prophet Nathan says to David that he would establish forever the kingdom of one of his descendants in verses 12 through 16, also Psalm 89, three through four. So we look at those prophecies and we can see that, that the Holy spirit freely used that idea of uh, establishing uh, something, establishing a rule, establishing a kingdom, and we know that ultimately the the promise to David is fulfilled in Christ, who is descended from from David, and he is king, and he is king now, and he will be king forever. And Peter refers to such promises also in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter two. If you go back to verses thirty through through thirty six, and uh, Daniel chapter two records the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, in which Daniel interpreted, and and we see the, the image of the statue that represented the four kingdoms, right? The head of uh, gold all the way down to the, the feet of iron and everything in between, if memory serves, and how those marked 
the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and, and Roman empires, and then the stone coming and striking that image or that statue and just break, breaking it to pieces and becoming a great mountain that was superior to, obviously, that image and all those other kingdoms that it represented, and that it would stand forever, right? So uh, all of that to say divine authority would be established for everybody, that this kingdom, this rule of Christ would transcend all nations and all all peoples, and it would be superior to all human authority. And in Isaiah, he prophesied that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow into it. In Isaiah 2, 2 and 3. So, you know, all the prophets, you know, well, I say all the prophets, but in that case, Isaiah and Daniel are using the same imagery of this grand mountain that's established by the Lord, that that's above all the others, and that it is uh, collecting all nations of the all nations shall flow into a Jew, Gentile will compose uh, this this new kingdom. And so both of those passages are referring to the establishment of a superior authority, the, the authority of Christ on David's throne to which all nations and peoples would and must submit. And in so doing, they would become the people uh, of God or the house of God is is the word that. Um, Isaiah uses the mountain of the Lord's house or family. Um, so not just a, not specifically a physical building, right? As we think of a house, but in scripture, that idea is used of, of, of the people themselves, right? The house of God is the church of God. Paul tells Timothy, meaning the, the people, right? Acts two forty seven that I mentioned at the outset, the Lord was adding daily to the church. Those, those people who were being saved. And so, and submitting to the, the rule of Christ is how we anybody can become a child of God or person of God and be brought into the people of God. It's a product of submission to his to his will. And so we take that as our, our background and we go and we look at Peter's sermon, more particularly in Acts chapter two. And if you begin reading in verse fourteen, it says, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who, all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my, to my words. And so he begins with this introduction as he's explaining the ability of the apostles now to speak in, in different languages. He says in verse 15, These men are not drunk, as you supposed, but only, it is the only, third, only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet prophet Joel. And so he's saying that this is divinely inspired that um, as God foretold through Joel, that this was going to happen in, in the latter days. And he concludes with whoever shall call on the name of the Lord, verse 21, uh, shall be shall be saved. And then Peter goes on to elaborate what that means and how people can be saved, uh, which many of them were, 3,000 were that very day when they submitted to Peter's message and obeyed what Peter said. And so he gets to the main body of his sermon. He talks about Jesus of Nazareth, who is approved by God in verse 22, attested by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. And then he goes on to indict them for handing Jesus over uh, because they rejected him, obviously, and, and had him crucified. 
And he says, this was according to God's plan. Verse 23, this, uh, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of, of godless men. And he talks about Jesus's resurrection, verse 24, that that was prophesied by David. In verse 25, David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence and at, at my right hand. And Peter says, this can't be talking about uh, David uh, because his grave is still yet with us. In verse 29, as Peter is talking uh, there about the application of David's prophecy, and so it has to refer to Christ, a descendant of David, who is Christ, who was resurrected from the dead to sit on his throne, verses 30 and 31. Uh, he knew that God swore to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, and he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of, of the Christ. And so Peter goes on to say, we're witnesses of that very resurrection that David was prophesying about, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up to which we are all witnesses and there therefore Christ is exalted God has fulfilled his promise uh, through all the prophets uh, all his promises through the prophets that he had made and Jesus has received his throne and he has been raised from the dead and now he has poured out his holy spirit as Joel prophesied and that is how we are empowered to speak these um do these miracles and speak in these in these different languages and so he says therefore God has made him uh, this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Know assuredly, let all the house of Israel know, verse 36, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And and so Peter's sermon is declaring the establishment of Jesus Christ's authority. Right? We go back and we just look at the flow of what he is saying and the prophecies that he's citing about the kingship of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And so when his audience hear this, verse 37, they are cut to the heart. Uh, when they heard these words, they were cut to the heart, and they had a question, what shall we do? And Peter told them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we think about the words that G, that Peter is saying, excuse me, when he says in, in the name of Jesus Christ, you know, isn't that the, that shouldn't surprise us that Peter is saying that given that what he's just said about Jesus and the authority of, of Jesus, this is ties Peter's reply with the sermon that fostered the question. He's saying, in other words, God has shown that this, Christ is king that he is he is exalted and so he's saying you what you're doing now to answer your question here's what you need to do in the name of the king right he's saying listen to the king submit to his authority so not just shout to heaven and and say his name that's not what call on the name of the lord means but it means to heed what the king is saying and here the king is saying through peter repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of sins and then as many as obeyed that that word, if you drop down to verse 41, those who received his word, they were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. And so that, that many people there were, were saved because of their belief and their obedience in the, the message and heeding the message. In verse 47, we cited earlier, uh, talking about the same people. It says, praising God and having favor with all the people the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved, right? 
And so that was what was established on the day of Pentecost. The, the rule of Christ, his, his church began and people were added and continue to be added. And so far as uh, whoever, whoever is willing to submit to the message, who's ever willing to obey the gospel, right? That Peter is putting before us here. And as we continue reading, we see that as Jesus said in the gospels in Luke 24, if memory serves that beginning at Jerusalem, that this would be preached, that re- that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached to the whole world. Well, then it goes forth from Jerusalem. And that also ties into the prophecy of Isaiah 2 and verse 3. Come, let us go up to the mountain. Right. So remember Isaiah's imagery of, of the mountain above the mountains and the house of the Lord established on the mountain of, and over the hills. And it's exalted above all others. So, you know, we talked about that. Uh, establishment of superior authority. Uh, but then he says, the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths, and out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so this too, what is what we're observing in Acts chapter 2, and as we continue to read the book of Acts, is a fulfillment of prophecy. Now the word of God that's being preached by Peter and the other apostles and all Christians as they are scattered in, in Acts chapter 7 and 8, they are fulfilling prophecy that the word of God preached by them would go forth. And so um, all that to say, there's nothing here about a, a validating or self-perpetuating institution called church. It's not that they were preaching about a party that people needed to join, uh, but they were preaching that they that people needed to be obedient to Christ, and by virtue of that obedience and submission to His rule, then they could become His people. So it's it's certainly true that those who submit to divine authority, as we've seen in in, in you know verse forty seven, they are added to a a group, a number, uh, the the church, and that obeying the commands of Jesus Christ, that we become God's people, and that constitutes His His church who are called the, the called out ones in this universal sense. But the universal church is not a, a functional entity. There's no, uh, There was no universal organization on earth established that day. Isaiah is saying that the, the authority of Christ and his instructions for salvation from sin would be declared on that wonderful day. And if we read it carefully, it says, He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. And that the law and the word of the Lord go forth from Jerusalem. So the three thousand souls who who were there to hear the message and, and believe in the Christ and obey Him, as as Peter called them to do in order to be saved, that they were added to the church. And so the church again, the the called out ones, flourished because the people of their own free will accepted the call, right, which was obedience to Christ. Yeah, but what if none of the 3,000 souls had obeyed the gospel that day? Well, regardless of their response, the essentials for God's people had been set forth, right? So Peter is saying you want to be reconciled to God. You want to be forgiven of your sins. Then one has to submit to the conditions that Peter sets forth, that he was inspired to set forth from God. And in so doing, again, became God's people. And so in thinking about these things, it helps us to understand the, the nature of the church and, and, again, what went forth 
from Jerusalem was was not a, a church per se, but it was it was the word that was being preached that brought about the product, which is the church. And so when we look at Acts chapter two, and we see that those individual believers in verse forty four were later called disciples and saints, and then finally Christians in Acts eleven twenty six. But collectively, these people were the ecclesia, the church, or the called out ones. And this word, after translation through Greek and Anglo-Saxon and Middle English, uh, you know, finally, you know, coming down to to our day, comes to us as church, and we talk about going to church um, and things like this. You, all of those ideas come into play in our vernacular, and, and if you look at a dictionary, it's going to show you that the word church is is used for organizations, it's used for buildings, it's used for religious societies. It can mean a service. It can mean a clerical profession. It's there's just all these different nuances in, in our language. But the basic New Testament usage, as in when Jesus said, "I will build my church," is that of a collective noun, which he was talking about his people. He was designating a certain people that would belong to him, my church, my people. And generally speaking, when we see church, we we should think of people of God. That's who the New Testament is talking about. So it's not talking about church as an event. And I know we say we go to church and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's not that's not the point. But my point is, is that we want to be careful to understand the word the way the New Testament is used and the way that Jesus used it. And when we do that, we won't, we'll be less susceptible to having erroneous concepts about what church is and what the church is to do. Uh, that, because God's people remain keepers of his word we're not the validating authority of that word we're the product of christians are the product of god's word right just as much as the people um who became christians in acts chapter 2 did so because of the word that was preached to them right and so when we study it, it becomes apparent too that kingdom along with church it's a predominant figure that's used to describe the spiritual dominion of the christ of the Messiah. And when we see the word kingdom, we should think of rule. If anything of those prophecies teach us from Isaiah and Daniel and, and, and Joel about the kingdom coming is that it was a, a rule that was going to be established. A king's reign was going to be established. And then after the idea of that, of, of rule and authority and reigning is planted in our minds, then we can look at the context to see if kingdom is being using an extended sense to designate the realm of that rule. right? So Jesus would tell people uh, on occasion that they were not far from the kingdom of God. Um, when he would have spiritual conversations, he would say, You're, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now I can stand you know, at the border of Texas and look across the Rio Grande River that that separates Texas and Mexico, and I can see somebody on the other side, and I can shout, you know, You're, you are not far from Texas. You are not far from the U.S. But that is, but that's not what Jesus was saying when he was saying you are not far from the kingdom. He wasn't talking about a physical distance that someone needed to travel in order to be in his realm of rule. No, the way you place yourself in the realm of his rule is by submitting to him. Right? When he told individuals you're not far from the kingdom of God, it was because they answered in a way that showed that they were seeking truth and wanted, and wanted to obey the truth. 
Jesus flatly denied that his kingdom is of this world in John eighteen thirty six and 37. And he was resurrected to sit on David's throne, but it's it's not a it's not a literal physical throne or physical uh, kingdom with borders that we we can observe and draw on a map. No, he reigns from heaven, and he reigns through his word, and he reigns over all of those who freely subject themselves to him in obedience to his word. That's what we see happening on Acts uh, on Pentecost, rather in Acts chapter two. God's messengers declare the establishment of Christ's rule, his kingdom, and the message of the reigning king was heard. And those who were obedient became citizens in that kingdom, wherever they were, wherever they were from in the world, right? Because Jesus' rule transcends all nations and all peoples and all governments, right? He is, he is sovereign. And then his law and his word went forth from Jerusalem, and it continues to go forth to this day wherever his people preach it. And the word is of God, and the obedient, those who are obedient to the word become children of God, not children of the church, as some would have us believe, but people in a direct relationship with the Father. And as saints and faithful brethren in Christ that Colossae were delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of of the Son, Colossians one twelve, so the true people of God today are citizens in Christ's kingdom, and a manifestation that His power is is very much alive. Romans one sixteen, the the gospel is the power of God to bring salvation to all people, to all who believe, first the Jew and then the Gentile, and so the proof is in the lives uh, of those who are subjecting themselves to the instructions of God's word not in their acceptance or submission to some institution or society or organization, not not because of their loyalty to some party that supposedly went forth from Jerusalem, but because of their loyalty and submission to his word. And so that's what you and I have to ask ourselves. Am I, am I loyal to Jesus? And that's something that's objectively determined. It's It's the same as asking, am I loyal to his teaching? Am I loyal to his doctrine? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. No one can mean anything by saying, I love Jesus, but I can't stand to read the Bible. Now that just doesn't make any sense. And so we can be certain we are the people of God as we draw near to him through his word and obey his word. Nothing has changed about that from Acts chapter 2. There's no other conditions None have been taken away from what Peter says in Acts 2.37. Not that I can see. And so we have to ask ourselves, have we obeyed those instructions, first of all, to begin with? I know that there's a whole lot more to the New Testament than just Acts 2.37. But when those people knew what they had done and that they were guilty and that their only hope was to submit to the king, they said, what are we going to do? Peter said, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the salvation of your souls. And so have we done that? And if we have, we can look into the word of God and see and trust that just as those people were added to his church, so can we be. Maybe we can help you with that somehow. I'm anxious to help you. I'd love to hear from you. Um, You can reach me at leonvalleychurch at gmail.com or just visit our website at leonvalleychurch.org and fill out a contact form. 
appreciate you tuning in. Please continue to study these things, and I will do the same. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.